This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McClinathan. And I have to say, Wade, I'm looking at this giant wall-sized portrait that you commissioned of yourself in Napoleonic garb. And I have to say, the portrait artist did a good job. They really captured your essence. I really appreciate that. I, I've always wondered, what would Napoleon look like six foot one? And apparently, it's me. Yeah, I can definitely see that. It fits pretty well. Listeners, we're going to be talking about paintings and pictures on this episode of Seeing and Believing. First up is Celine Siama's new film, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And then we're going to be offering our review of Dee Reese's follow-up to her 2017 film, Mudbound, and her second film with Netflix, the Anne Hathaway starring political thriller, The Last Thing He Wanted. One could be the best film of the year, and one might just be the worst film of the year. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 238 of Seeing and Believing. Je suis peintre. L'homme intéressé par ma fille est milanais. Nous partons là-bas si le portrait lui plaît. Il a épuisé déjà un peintre avant vous. Que s'est-il passé Je ne sais pas. Listeners, that is a clip from Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We're going to get to that review in just a few moments. And then later on in the show, we're going to be discussing Dee Reese's film, The Last Thing He Wanted. Kevin, are you still recovering from our Best of the Decade podcast? Because I am, and whenever I say recovering... I'm still second-guessing myself. Every day brings with it what I feel like is almost a new regret. Why didn't that film make it? It's tough, and I don't know if I'm going to get over it. Yeah, I spent some time after we finished recording kind of looking over some best-of-the-decade lists that you know I'd glanced at, but I hadn't really taken some time to sit with. And seeing all the great films on those lists, I was like, oh, I, I did have a little bit of list maker's remorse, but you know, it, we put it in the podcast, so it's set in stone and I can never change my mind ever. <laughs> no, you can't. And you don't have to say, Kevin, I know, I know that after you heard me talk about Moneyball, you were like, oh, I should have put that in my top 10. It's okay. I felt, I felt that <laughs> you didn't need to communicate it to me. Well, I some things are better left unsaid for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners, this week's episode begins with our review of Celine Siama's new film. Here's the movie's official synopsis. In France, at the end of the 18th century, Marianne, played by Anumi Merala, a painter, is commissioned to do the wedding portrait of Heloise, played by Adèle Haenel a young woman who has just left a convent. 
Heloise is a reluctant bride-to-be, and Marianne must paint her without her knowing. She observes her day-to-day to paint her secretly. Kevin, what follows is a gothic romance of sorts, with both women falling for each other in a swirl of forbidden love. Though A Portrait of a Lady on Fire is just getting a theatrical release in many places around the country, it technically does count as a 2019 film. It's also one of those movies that ended up making its fair share of top 10 lists at the end of last year. My question to you, Kevin, as we begin this discussion is this. If you could retroactively go back and redo your top films of 2019 list, would you include Portrait of a Lady on Fire? Uh, somebody has been reading my Twitter feed, I see. <laughs> as it, I uh, did tweet out uh, as soon as I saw Portrait of a Lady on Fire about a couple weeks ago that you know every year there is one film that I just don't have the chance to catch up with before we make our list. I make my list and then I see the film and I have to go back and you know, eat my words a little bit on the ranking that I had. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is really good. Definitely believe the hype. My only regret about it is that I did not see it sooner. I think it's a really strong film. It's really well shot film. And, you know, it is a very effective romance. But I think what really puts it over the top for me, and I'm interested in getting your thoughts on this as well, is that Celine Siama isn't just making a romance. She's also making a film about the act of of looking, the act of observing, the act of aesthetic creation, and the relationship that those acts have with the experience of falling in love. And I think that there are a lot of really interesting connections that are drawn out over the course of the film, and they're just so ravishingly shot and really interestingly uh, framed and acted that I, don't know, I, I think it's it's a really strong film. Not sorry at all to uh, add it to my list. I'm just sorry that it wasn't on there to begin with. Well, you know, we, we just talked about our best of the decade list and how you are locked in for life. You can't change anything. So um, maybe maybe <laughs> the rules don't apply for the end of the year list. You know, Kevin, you kind of mentioned um, the universal nature of this film. And there are going to definitely be people who come in with different perspectives to watch this story. I think when you really dig down to it, this is a movie about the economics of marriage, and I kind of keep coming back to that phrase. It's a it's a feminist film that wrestles with women in this time period and the roles that they were stuck in and the duties that they needed to fulfill or they were made to fulfill. And then when you kind of when you even get a little bit deeper, it also reminds us of that that spark of of love and that spark of romance and how you could say love friendship is is really just about being seen by someone else being understood by someone else and i think whoever you are and whatever way you look at this film or you come into this film to look at it i think those realities 
bubble to the surface. And then, yeah, it, it's just shot so well. It's an exquisite film, Kevin. And that's a, I think that's another good word to go back to, exquisite. And, I mean, we could probably go on and on about that. But um, this is someone who knows how to make a movie. And we see that on the screen. Yeah, I have to wonder if Siyama was really thinking a lot about Ingmar Bergman's film Persona when she made this film, because there are a lot of commonalities in it. I mean, Persona has its own homoerotic undercurrents. There is a whole lot in that film about these these two women at its center who grow very close in very... Uh, interesting and distinctive ways. And Bergman also draws a link between uh, the story that he's telling with those characters and the art of filmmaking itself. So there's that connection as well. And it's just interesting to observe all the connections in this film as well. Uh, and Siama, I think, very intentionally calls out Bergman's film in her choice of framing some shots. So there's, so there's a shot early in the film where... Um, the the two women are walking along the this bluff overlooking the sea on this island where Heloise uh, and her family live, and at this point in the movie, Heloise is not aware that that Marianne is there to uh, paint her. She thinks that she's kind of just a companion there to give her a little bit of social interaction before she picks up and moves to Milan, where she's going to. Uh, close the deal on this arranged marriage. And Siyama shoots them both overlooking the sea in profile, but she places her camera in such a way that Marianne's face is the only face we can see. Heloise's is completely covered up by Marianne's profile, and then Marianne turns to look and observe Heloise to sort of take mental notes for the portrait that she'll be painting later, and that's when Heloise's profile comes into view is when Marianne turns to look at her. And then Heloise catches her staring. She looks back towards the sea and Heloise is covered up again. And that kind of blocking so that the object of both aesthetic interest and desire kind of shifts in and out of view depending on who's looking at her, I think is really interesting and very telling about the kinds of connections that Siyama is suggesting between those two things. Yeah, and I think too, the sort of visual motifs that we go back to, the idea of obscurity. And so there's there's one scene with a mirror and one individual is looking at this mirror and we do not see her face. She's She's practicing a pose and we can't see her face. There's this other image of a painting that has not been completed. The body has been completed, but we cannot see the individual's face. There's another scene where one character goes to a piano and begins to play, and we think she's going to take this uh, cover off the piano, and she doesn't. And she just kind of puts her hands underneath this drape. And continues to play. The, the idea of, of feeling covered up, the idea of feeling uh, not seen or, or not thought of, and then coming into contact with uh, individuals uh, who do see you and who do seek to, uh, to understand 
who you are. And so there is that universal feeling to the movie. And at the same time, too, this you know, this manner, it's, it's, it's very gothic. Um, if you look at kind of the set design, the production design, as well as the stark casting of the movie, uh, we really only have a few principal characters. And then also these auditory pauses, all of this creates a feeling of isolation. The, the rocks outside the sea, in some senses, it can be very breathtaking, but also very jagged, very, very, very disconnecting, uh, very, very haunted. And so we have these kind of mixed emotions running through the form that the film takes to kind of emphasize or highlight these relationships among these characters. Well, you even get uh, almost a ghost in this film, speaking of sort of it being a gothic romance. Uh, from time to time, Marianne, as she's walking around this gigantic manor house, uh, she begins to see uh, apparitions, I guess, of Heloise kind of in a in a darkened doorway. She sort of appears wearing the wedding dress, presumably, that she's going to wear when she uh, actually gets married to her suitor down in Milan. And she's not actually there. Like, this isn't a literal ghost. Uh, Heloise isn't actually appearing to her in the flesh, but there's still this sense that her presence is hovering over uh, the the house and specifically over Marion's thoughts. And that, again, is... Siama finding ways to to suggest the experience of of desire and of falling in love with somebody, not in a way that has all of the trappings of you know the rushing strings romance. Although this film does evoke that as well, but I, I think what's interesting about this film is Siama's aestheticization of of romance in in a way that plays not just on the emotions but also just the appreciation of beauty and i think that that's that's something that that anybody and and maybe even especially christian viewers can kind of can kind of appreciate that if we beauty in the world is created by god and uh is can be appreciated in that sense not necessarily because uh we want to possess it or because we we uh, are greedy for it, but the experience of art is looking at something and simply appreciating it and and loving it for for what it is and for the beauty it reveals, and that's something that the connections that Siama is drawing throughout this film suggests to us is that uh, love is is a passion, yes, but it can also be. Uh, an aesthetic appreciation of something that deepens the emotion and informs it. And I think that the the various ways that Siyama draws us out with the the gothic aspects of the narrative and also the parallels with the portrait that Marianne, the portraits, I guess, that Marianne paints over the course of this film uh, are are meant to to draw that out. I'm really interested, especially to to get your thoughts on the significance of how Marion paints one portrait of Heloise about halfway through the film, and then decides that it's unsatisfactory and sets out to paint a second one. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about the 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 process of knowing someone or understanding someone or really kind of entering into their world, this 
subplot, or I, I guess it's a it's a part of the main plot, where she does paint this one image, and it's not very good. I mean, it's not terrible, but it's just it doesn't capture the it, it doesn't capture the essence of Heloise, and so she essentially destroys it. And I, this is all kind of working through the idea of of really wanting to connect with an individual or to be understood. And, you know, th- there's this world that's kind of operating here in the background where, you know, this portrait needs to be made so the future husband can see what his future wife will look like. And it, and it's just kind of funny to think about because it's like, yeah, the only reason, the only way you can know what someone looks like outside of seeing them face to face is a drawing or a painting. Uh, and, and then at the same time, um, he's supposed to, he's supposed to, I guess, understand his future wife by looking at that portrait to get to know her. And so this character is, is doing her best to capture that through her art. And it also brings to mind just the idea of art and what art can do and capturing emotion and capturing the essence of someone and sort of putting that on a, on a palette. And it it's really is, you know, worth something to just kind of watch uh, these, these brush strokes on this canvas. I, I just really loved watching uh, this character create this portrait. It was a lot of fun. I, I probably could watch, you know, a longer movie where we just get to see that happening on the screen. So the act of creation is connected to what art does well, uh, but visually we, we still get to see that. And that's, that really is a, a lot of fun to, to look at. One thing that I find interesting about this film is how it does really dig deep into the process of creating art and, you know, draws these connections we've been talking about between love and uh, art, artistic creation. But Siyama isn't necessarily going to go overboard on making those connections. It's not one of these films where it's, you know, art will save us all. Siyama definitely complexifies this uh, relationship that she's setting up by bringing up the story of Orpheus, the mythological story of Orpheus and Eurydice, where Orpheus, you know, has to go down to the underworld to retrieve his beloved uh, under the condition that he doesn't look behind him, he can take her back out of the underworld. And of course, at the very edge of the underworld, he turns around and she's lost forever. And there's a conversation between Marianne and Heloise and the maid, who is kind of the the third central character uh, of this film, where they're discussing this myth and how sad it is. And Marianne, the painter, actually argues that Orpheus is not a sympathetic character in this tale. He's not a tragic character. He's an unsympathetic person who makes the poet's choice rather than the lover's choice. And that I found really interesting because it suggests that there is a way to think of the uh, an emotion like love in a very abstracted sense where it's it's almost divorced from the reality of being with somebody and looking out for them and desiring the best for them in when they bring it up in relation to the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice it wouldn't be a really great story 
a really tragic, great story if Orpheus and Eurydice came out of the underworld and lived happily ever after. The reason we keep retelling it over and over and all these paintings are made about it that we see uh, at the end of the film, the only reason we have those is because he turns around and looks at her and loses her. And I think that that's a really great way for Siama to suggest that you know art's not necessarily the be-all, end-all, and neither is love. There's there, there are greater things at work in this universe, and the fact that this film kind of holds all of those in a really beautiful tension, I think, is one reason why I appreciate it so much. Yeah, and, and we're, you know, if we're talking about doomed love, I mentioned perspectives. There's certainly going to be people who come in with a particular perspective to watch this movie. And I did too, as an evangelical Christian. I think one of the things that it reminded me of is it reminds me that even the warmest and even steadiest of of human relationships will bring loss and sadness in the end. I mean, that's just a part of life, whether that's uh, through separation or whether it's just simply through death that we all experience and we we do have that longing to be seen and to be known and i'm struck with the fact that you know god does know us better than we know ourselves he he sees our blind spots and he knows us better than even the those who are closest to us know us he he knows us in a way that someone on the outside just can't comprehend and so these characters, they'll find connection, and they even find some some solace in in music and the arts. Um, and that reminds me, you know, might those things push us for our desire for transcendence, or do they reflect something deeper in our lives? And might some aspects of human relationships remind us of our need for God? So regardless of how people kind of view the particulars of this story when we're thinking about some of these big ideas there are there are some nuggets to to chew on i I will say this i don't know if the movie works exactly uh in terms of plot you know we we walk in kind of understanding this is a you know a a doomed lover's story Uh, there's also a subplot involving a pregnancy that i that it just really kind of derails the film uh in the end and and so it's not a perfect film, but I think it's it's definitely a film that provides some you know some food for thought. And it, the artistry that went into this movie is, um, I mean, it's it's pretty powerful. I think what I appreciate about this film and what takes it from uh, just a very good romance to something that is more than just that is the final sequence of the film, or I guess it's really more of a final shot. It's this lengthy shot of one of the central duo uh, as she sits at a concert listening to a Vivaldi piece. And we hear the Vivaldi piece from beginning to end, and Siyama's camera is just trained on her face. And we get to see kind of the whole gamut of emotions rush over her as this meaningful piece to her uh, happens in front of her. And by keeping the camera just trained on her, Siyama is essentially inviting us to do what Marianne has been doing for the entire film, which is to gaze at this face and really take it in and notice as much as we can about it and uh, let all other distractions fade away and just sort of let ourselves 
observe and and do so very carefully while this beautiful Vivaldi piece is happening on the soundtrack. It's almost like the uh, period-specific version of a rock song. You know, it's just an utter barn burner of an ending. And I just think that it's such a perfect note for the film to end on that I I... I was just utterly beguiled by it. I thought it was really great. Yeah, it, it definitely is an emotional bookend uh, to this film. Listeners, that is our review of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We'd love to get your thoughts, uh, especially concerning this film and all that goes into it. Make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be reviewing the new film from D. Reese, The Last Thing He Wanted, coming up here on Seeing and Believing. Can it be There's a place out there where only you and me And nobody else Can you see There's a way out only yeah, follow me For our beds ourselves I can't get on without you There's something in the way that you move History Chases you and leads you to extreme Can you outrun it? Can you breathe Through a menthol fog or a gentle summer's breeze It's a sweet Listeners, we want to take a moment and thank everyone who supported us on our Patreon campaign. When you support us, you keep the podcast going and you also get some great perks. We're going to be releasing here soon our top 11 through 20 films of the decade discussion that will be available only to our Patreon supporters. It's going to be out here soon. We we didn't have a chance to record it after our big hoorah last week, but we've been putting stuff together, so that'll be there, and hopefully we can create some, some dialogue. That'll be a lot of fun. Listeners, just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast to become a Patreon supporter and to check out that episode, that discussion. Kevin, there are a lot of great levels of support through our Patreon campaign. And one of those is the what can you buy for $5 level. And it's been a couple weeks, but I'm really interested to know what could our listeners buy for five bucks? Uh, $5 would buy you an ant farm where all the ants are wearing tiny little top hats and have tiny little canes. Wow. That's, that's a whole lot of bang for a $5 buck. <laughs> That's crazy. It's, it's a very it's a it's the classiest ant farm on the market. So yeah, it seems like a steal for five bucks. Yeah, and uh, you, <laughs> Kevin, you know who their their favorite actor is? Those ants. <laughs> I I don't know who is their favorite actor. Fred Ant Stare. <laughs> Does that work? 
No, uh, uh, Fred Astaire? Only barely, but okay. I'll allow it. Well, you said top hats <laughs> and dancing and all that stuff, so I, I thought of Fred Astaire, but Ant Stare, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. But five bucks will get you that, or it'll get you access to our Patreon page. Like I mentioned before, just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast yeah thanks very much for all you do for us uh current and future patrons but wade we also heard from a lot of listeners over twitter because we did send out the call we put out the bat signal for seeing and believing listeners to share with us their own favorite films of the decade uh to sort of maybe inject a little bit of diversity into our views of uh, what 2010 through 2019 had to offer. And we got quite a few responses. Uh, Hot Dog Thursday, if that is his real name, offers The Tree of Life and Dunkirk, uh, of course, which uh, both made appearances on our list. He goes on to mention Roma, Meek's Cutoff, which I think is a fantastic choice and was one that I was really sad to leave off of my list. He had Hirokazu Koreeda's Shoplifters, Inherent Vice, Another Year, which is a film that I actually have not had a chance to catch up with yet. Yeah, I haven't either. I haven't seen it. And uh, Grand Budapest Hotel and Boyhood to round it out. So that's a pretty good list. Thank you, Hot Dog Thursday. Kyle the Mad Titan wrote in to say that he really liked Mad Max Fury Road as his pick for the best of the decade. He says, It's a miracle of a movie that delivers high-octane thrills and uplifts the value of every human being. Thanks for writing in, Kyle. Jeff Kane wrote in, well, he, he, he I guess he screenshotted in. He's on Letterboxd, and he sent us a screenshot of his favorite films of the 2010s. Some uh, films on there that were on our list, but he had Francis Ha and Moonlight on there, which I was happy to see as picks. Uh, Also, Jim Jarmusch's Patterson, which feels like, I don't know, I feel like I don't hear as much about that film as I maybe should. So definitely good picks there, Jeff. Uh, Jared Wheeler wrote in to say, A few in no particular order. The Grand Budapest Hotel, check. The Social Network, check. Roma, check. Take Shelter, which is a movie that, if I'm being honest, I hadn't it hadn't occurred to me to put on my best of the decade, but that's an inspired choice. And Toy Story 3 to round it out. So lots of good picks there from Jared as well. Yeah, and we also got a tweet from Seth Hani. He said he loved Moonrise Kingdom from Up on Poppy Hill, A Silent Voice, Liz and the Blue Bird, The Red Turtle, and then he also mentions Before midnight so a number of those films i have not seen uh some of them i have and i know kevin you're a big fan of the red turtle because i think it made your top 10 one year and i I liked it i didn't love it but uh i know you were a fan of it yeah it's it's an absolutely great film and i'm really glad seth ronin he's kind of our uh animation aficionado so most of the films in his list were animated so a few of those i haven't had the chance to catch up with but looks like i should and of course it's good to see some love for before midnight yeah no it is and i i have that i think it's in my top 50 i really like that movie and want to revisit it um, but it's great elijah olsen has some great ones he put down hell caesar sing street i'm a big sing street fan the Accountant, which is kind of a dark horse pick, Interstellar, The Florida Project, Eighth Grade, 
I'm going to talk about that on my 11 through 20, Kevin. Just a little teaser. And then Apollo 11. Yeah, I'm a, I mean, Apollo 11, you have me there. So um, big fan of that. And then Christy Olsen gives us her top 16. And at number one, she has Knives Out. And she says, I know Knives Out is probably benefiting from recent, recency bias. But it's one I see myself revisiting over and over. I've seen it three times so far. I no, I I totally get that. It's it's part of the way triangle. It's rewatchability. So you gotta have that. Uh, she has some great films. Uh, also has Sing Street at number four. Short Term Twelve uh, is up there. Mission Impossible: Rogue Nation. Uh, True Grit. I'll just name a couple of these off. The Innocence is on the list. Ten Cloverfield Lane. Of course, Mad Max Fury Road. The Kip of the Bike. Winter's Bone. Arrival. Uh, Leave No Trace, which is a fantastic movie. Uh, so a lot of a lot of really good picks on Christy Olsen's page. I like kind of the variety uh, there. And then Dr. Ron, he has, he's a Patreon supporter. He has The Kid with a Bike. Kevin, you love that movie. It's, uh, it's on my list, didn't make my top 10. And, and Dr. Ron, he's, he's, he's emailed us a number of times over the course of the show, and we always love hearing his thoughts. So it's good to hear uh, his top pick of the decade and uh, all these other picks that got sent in. That's, that's a, it's a whole lot of fun. Yeah, it's especially good to know that Dr. Ron knows the score when it comes to the kid with the bike. So thank you for the vindication (laughs) on that. Listeners, we are, of course, always open to hearing your thoughts. If you didn't get a chance to email or tweet us about your faves of the decade over the past week, it's not too late. We would still love to hear from you. Our inbox is open. Or if you'd like to email us about uh, any of your thoughts about either Portrait of a Lady on Fire or the movie we're about to discuss up here in a second, the last thing he wanted, we're open to that as well. Email and Twitter account, of course, have already been mentioned, but we love to hear from you regardless. Some real things have happened lately. I want to know why. The reporter with a moral compass. Always a step ahead. Everything that happens, she's sourced up and in print. These people are starting to move surplus arms to Contras. You can't just look away. Mission shipping crates for M16s, most likely. He's the old man. Dad. Well, we're back with the second half of our show, and I feel, Wade, like you maybe should have appended a little bit of a spoiler warning to the cold open, because you might have tipped our hand here as far as uh, our conversation with this the second film, and I, I'm, I'm not sure how it's going to work. I'm interested to know what the listening numbers for this episode are, given uh, that <laughs> strategy, teasing what's coming on later in the episode. Yeah, you know, I had to do that. Um, but I think this might end up being one of the worst films of 2020. I, I, don't, I don't find any joy in that, right? And I don't, you know... If I would have known how bad this movie would have been, I, I don't know if we would have chosen it. Uh, but that's just that's just how it is. <laughs> so sorry, listeners. 
Well, uh, we we're, we are going to dig in a little bit deeper into uh, why you think that way. So let's uh, let's get to it. Director D. Reese is, of course, the director of what I thought was one of the stronger films of 2017, Mudbound. Like Mudbound, this new film, The Last Thing He Wanted, is an adaptation of a novel, this time written by the great Joan Didion. The plot is part political thriller, part journalistic procedural, part elusive character study. The character in question is Elena McMahon, played by Anne Hathaway, a reporter with a fictional Atlantic Post newspaper whose take-no-prisoners approach to her job takes her from the conflict-wracked Central America of the early Reagan years to the halls of power in Washington, D.C. But the story really gets twisty when Elena's aging deadbeat father, played by Willem Dafoe, shows up and gets Elena involved in a gun-running deal with the Contras in Nicaragua. Elena takes part less from greed and more from a desire to get to the bottom of what shady dealings the United States is up to, and from there, Reese spins the film out into an exploration of the complex forces shaping both international politics and Elena's own impulses. So, Wade, like I said, you've tipped your hand a little bit on this film, but I am curious to know what you make of the the sheer complexity of this film, and since it obviously didn't work quite as well for you as you might have hoped, I'm curious to get your thoughts as to uh, how well the film uh, pursues that and where it might have gone off the rails for you a little bit. Yeah, so I think with this type of political thriller, you you almost expect to follow the point of view of the lead character, which is Anne Hathaway. And she is very much in the dark. She's very confused. She doesn't know exactly what's going on most of the movie. And in one sense, with a well-made film, you can expect confusion or even tolerate confusion because that is what the main character is, is feeling. There's really no way to parse these events. And for us as a viewer, we can't do that either. And it adds to the tension. It adds to the thematic elements in the movie. It adds to the story. Here, we go past that to just unintelligible. And I, I was I was watching this movie, and it's just kind of an odd feeling. And I mentioned this to you earlier. Uh, you know, sometimes you're watching a film. And maybe you, you know, pull open your cell phone or you're folding the laundry, you're doing something and you, and you look back at the TV and you're like, oh, I, I, I just, I wasn't paying attention. I'm a little confused. I'm watching this movie. My phone's in the other room. I'm not doing anything else. And I'm through the first hour of a two hour movie. And it feels like I've been on my cell phone, not paying attention the entire time. And so it's more than just the character is confused. It's the story really doesn't have a rhyme. It doesn't have a flow. It assumes we know something when we don't. It bounces back and forth from characters to characters. It, it focuses its POV on certain characters that are minor characters that we, we don't even need to see in the story. It, it's just, it's odd and it's, it just is inexplicable, Kevin. It's, it's a very, I don't know, it's just a very strange film and it's a very odd experience and it gets worse. The last 10 minutes are just, they're just out of control. <laughs> I, you know, I, I 
have to admit, I had a hard time with this film too. And I have to wonder if it's partly an adaptation problem. This is a film that, uh, like I mentioned in, in the intro, is based off of a novel by Joan Didion uh, on uh, using a screenplay written by Reese herself, co-writing with Marco Villalobos. And Joan Didion is an author that I have to confess I haven't gotten around to yet. I'm not familiar with her work. Uh, from what I've uh, read about her in my research, though, it seems like her style is um, very, very literary in the sense that there's a lot going on in her prose. And the experience of reading one of her novels might be a little bit... Um, you know, would require a lot of engagement on the part of the reader sort of track with what she's doing. And I think that Didion, if, you know, has such a great reputation, probably in part because she is good at making it so that the reader gets back uh, their investment for what they put in. So if they invest a lot of energy in sticking with her, the rewards are commensurate with that kind of work. And I wonder with this film, if maybe something got lost in the translation from that, that style of Didion's and uh, making that on screen, because it does really seem like we're jumping around in a way that might be explicable if we were privy to some some prose or some narration that kind of orients us as to what's going on and why the characters are making the choices that they are. But because we're not privy to that, because as is kind of a, a cliche, film is a visual medium, there's a lot that happens on screen that is just inexplicable to the viewer because uh, Reese hasn't quite laid the foundation that allows us to feel like we're on solid ground, and the editing by Mako Kametsuna doesn't really do anything to shape that material into an easily digestible form. And I, I guess I'm a little bit like you. I was watching this film, and I felt confused, and I wonder, I worried that it was that it was just me, like, did I, if I missed a line of dialogue or something. But I think by the end, we're forced to conclude that this is just, this is a film where the narrative hasn't really been shaped into a way that makes its elusiveness uh, both intelligible in the end and also rewarding for the amount of, of work that it requires from the viewer. Yeah, and, and you know, at one point... We, we get this line from Elena's character, and she says, all I have left is this story. And she's gone on this strange adventure, which is it's difficult to kind of understand even after reading a synopsis of it, watching the film and then reading a synopsis and trying to you know think through it. Uh, but but I don't I didn't get the sense that she was ever really exploring a story. It, and that's what strains. What is what is motivating this character? And I think when you have good motivation, and you have something to say, a clear voice, uh, you can work through some of this this confusion. And we've all watched movies where if we had to write down the plot from A to Z and connect all the dots, we wouldn't be able to do it. Um, but it's about something being coherent. And I think what you also see here too is how the form of a movie can either enhance the story or add to that confusion. So in this film, we get 
voiceovers at the start, which is which is fine, but then that stops. And then we get scenes where character where ca- the camera is actually cutting through like the sides of walls and then it's turning to a, another scene which is okay, but then that stops. And then we get kind of these strange handheld, almost wide angle shots uh, during sections of the movie. And it just all feels, it, it, it feels like multiple directors are working on this film at once. And so you've got this person, this person, and this person, and all trying to have the kind of the, the same visual palette, uh, but they're doing different moves with the camera and, and, Characters are turning in different performances. At one point, Willem Dafoe feels very um, his 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 performance feels like it's it's very much uh, a stage performance, and then other times it's it's not. And and so all of that just it just adds to the overall incoherence of this picture. Yeah, it, it's a shame because. There is the ghost of an outline of of something intriguing here, and it lies in that uh, that speech that that you mentioned earlier, where uh, Elena is talking about how she needs to to find the story, and then if she walks away from the story that's taking shape uh, surrounding the the scandal with the providing of U.S. weapons to the Contras in Nicaragua. If she can't somehow make sense of that and get it out into the world, if she walks away from that, then it feels as if she'll be somehow unmoored from the rest of her life. And that's that's an interesting idea, and I would have liked to have seen it uh, pursued in a more in a more coherent fashion, I guess, because there is something to the idea of the 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 experience of living in a world where these there are these vast shadowy government forces that aren't necessarily like do up to anything nefarious although they they might be but the sense that the the that there are forces that are, that are so much more powerful than the individual that it makes the experience of living as a as an individual person trying to make sense of it all a little bit discombobulating like you can't quite make sense of your own existence because you're trying to connect all the dots and they they seem either monstrous or just inexplicable that's an interesting idea to pursue and i think that to her credit hathaway really does bring a lot to this role and anchors it as much as as she's able to given the shall we say uh over overly complex uh backstabbing and plot twists that we witness in the narrative itself. But Elena is uh, a very interesting character and Hathaway plays her as, you know, this, this brittle, strong, but also not very, not, not fully aware of the entirety of her internal uh, geography, I guess. There there are certain aspects of her that she doesn't quite understand or isn't quite sure how to fully harness. And that's kind of suggested by the fact that uh, she's a survivor of breast cancer and she's had a mastectomy. And so there's that theme of there's something missing from her, her body, just like there's something missing from the, the the her worldview, the way that she can make sense of what's around her. All that's really interesting. I don't think that Reese really pulls it off in any 
conceivable way, which is is such a shame because it, it it could it could get there, but there's just too much complexity distracting from and muddying the waters. Yeah, and at one point, Hathaway's character is placed on Reagan's re-election campaign trail. And there's even one short montage, which is not bad. You've got speeches, cross dissolves, uh, and and then you you go to Texas and there's this campaign party and then you have an image of Jerry Falwell on uh, a television screen. And there seems to be this idea that, you know, anything surrounding these types of activities, it, you know, it's supposed to be important and it's supposed to mean something, right? It means something that they're in Texas uh, because of, you know, the, the political reputation that Texas have. It, it means something when you hear Reagan talk about America. You know, it means something to, see, you know, hear Jerry Falwell uh, give a political statement on the, on the television screen. And this, the, the Contra Affair, it, it all means something. Um but I, but I think I think the film takes for granted what it does mean and how it all connects and what these shadowy figures in the government, um, their motivations and why they do what they do and the fallout from what they do. Uh, it, so instead, we, we get all this um, this quote unquote political imagery, but but that's kind of it. It's just floating out there in the ether. And that seems to be a good way to kind of describe this movie as it just floats from place to place, not really knowing where it's going and not really helping the, the viewer along the way. It, it does seem as if Reese is really leaning hard on the, the sort of shorthand that communicates, you know, uh, shadowy government operatives in a way that uh, really relies on the the tropes to do the heavy lifting of the storytelling rather than making the storytelling kind of tell the story itself. And, and what I mean by that is there are all these shots of uh, Ben Affleck's character. He's kind of this the CIA spook sort of guy. And uh, we get lots of shots of him against backdrops where we see you know the presidential seal or we see the wall of former presidents over his shoulder. And it seems like Reese is sort of saying, you know, this is this is sort of institutionally what America has become, but it, it all feels very thinly sketched out. Like those things are there because we all know that the guy wearing a suit talking in front of, you know, the United States of America, you know, uh, some sort of uh, logo or flag, we know that, okay, he's the bad guy because we've seen other movies where he's the bad guy. And that's fine as long as, the rest of the movie is also kind of working in order to flesh that out a little bit. And and this film really doesn't in any satisfying way to the point where you're kind of left with, well, the only thing left to do with this film is try to figure out the labyrinthine plot. And like I said, I, I, I'm not sure the rewards for actually putting in that work are commensurate with the amount of work that it is. Yeah. And it's, it's not really uh, tense or, or gripping at all. And so when you've got all of these issues and all of these problems and it's not even entertaining, uh, well, then, you know, there's there's something wrong here. Listeners, that is our review of The Last Thing He Wanted. Let us know. 
what you think of the film if you've seen it. Make sure to tweet us at cbelievepod, at cbelievepod, or email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Kevin, we've reached the end of the episode, and it's at this point in the show that we recommend something to our listeners from the world of television and or film. What would you like to recommend to our listeners this week? Well, since we were talking about uh, political thrillers and how we we wish that the last thing that he wanted was more successful in that area, I decide to recommend a film that I think is an example of a really excellent political thriller, and that would be Sidney Lumet's 1964 film Failsafe. This stars Henry Fonda as the President of the United States, and the basic outline of the plot is a little bit similar to Dr. Strangelove. There's a an instance of some, a nuclear bomber getting sent over to drop a nuke on the Soviet Union, uh, attempts to recall it fail, and the, uh, the majority of the film is spent with all of these uh, politicians and people in power trying to figure out, well, what are we going to do now that nuclear holocaust seems unavoidable it's a a really gripping uh film and uh it's just shot really well by cinematographer gerald hirschfeld uh sitting lumet kind of at the top of his game here so is henry fonda projecting that that aura of quiet authority that he's so well known for i just think it's really great and it's a, a good watch if you're kind of in the mood for uh some good old political paranoia from the cold war i have not seen the film but uh it's definitely one that i want to watch it's on my watch list and so i'm gonna have to try to you know try to get to it i was thinking about uh the first film we talked about portrait of a lady on fire and the the look that this film examines as it relates to its female characters and it reminded me of a movie that I just saw this week, so I I really liked it, so I'm going to go ahead and recommend it. And it's the 1944 film Laura. Uh, This is from director Otto uh, Preminger, and it is about a police detective played by Dana Andrews who falls for a woman who has been murdered. So he's investigating her murder, and he falls in love with her, right? The first rule of an investigation, don't fall in love with the victim. Well, that happens. (laughs) Laura is played by uh, Jean Tierney, and I think this is just a fantastic noir thriller. It's got crackling dialogue. The The last two minutes of this film are just incredibly tense, like clutch your, your chest uh, tense. It's a whole lot of fun. A number of twists throughout the movie. I really like the, the cinematography and I think the performances are wonderful. And, and two, thematically, what this film holds is, is this idea of projection and how the men in this film project something on this female character, on Laura, and what that does to them, and then how that plays out in this, this mystery. So it's really wonderful. And this is kind of weird. So I was talking to my mom today, and I said, you know, my mom's, her name is Laura. And I said, hey, I watched this film called Laura, and it's really great. Have you seen it? You know, I think you'd like it. And she was like, yes, and that's why I'm named Laura, because my parents 
love that movie so much. And so I'd never, <laughs> I never knew that about my, um, about my, my family, about my mom. So I thought that was cool. But yeah, so uh, Laura 1944, uh, it's a pretty good picture. Yeah, I, I'm ashamed to say that I have not seen this film, and I, I love film noir, so I have no excuse, and I should definitely run out and, and make sure to find out however I can. It sounds really great. Yeah, and uh, you know, Vincent Price is is in the film as well. He does a great job. It's uh, it's been it's one that I've heard about, and I've been wanting to watch for a while, and just finally had a chance to do it. And yeah, it's it's pretty wonderful. So, listeners, we want to thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. Make sure to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.